So we're halfway through Ephesians. Are y'all ready to get into the other half? Halfway through. Do you remember what the main point of chapters 1, 2, and 3? Does anybody remember? What was like the overall theme of chapter 1, 2, and 3? Anybody? That. Close. It was what Christ has already done for us, right? And who we are in Him because of what He's already done. So the whole overall overall theme in 1, 2, and 3, that's the theme. It's important to know that Christ has already done some stuff for us, amen? Because if we're always sitting back waiting for Him to do something, we don't... there's, there's no promise in that. He's already done some stuff. So all of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 tells you all about that. And then in chapter 1, Paul prays the prayer, remember? Um, open the eyes of their heart so they can see what you've already done for them. Most people walk around not knowing, right? So Paul's prayer was open their eyes, not these eyes, the, these eyes. So you can see what Christ has already done for you. That was his prayer. And then in chapter 3, he prayed again. And there were really four things in that prayer. Number one, he prayed that, that they would be granted spiritual strength by God's Spirit. Amen? Number two, that Christ might make his home in their hearts. Not in salvation, but make his home in their hearts, meaning to renew their minds so that the things that he was leading them to do, they could hear that by their spirit. Amen? Number three, that through their being rooted and grounded in love, and that's very important, in love, that they would comprehend or get revelation knowledge. You've got to know the dimensions of love to know the knowledge of love. To be able to operate in love. Amen? And then number four, he prayed that by experiencing Christ's love, that they would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Amen? So love is an experience. Right? Amen. You can know a lot about love, but experiencing the love of God is another level. And that was his prayer for them. Alright? And so as he prayed all these things for them, he was, he was getting them ready. He was getting them ready with information, but then he was also preparing them in prayer for what he was about to say in chapter 4. Amen? So I want to look one more time at chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And pay a close attention to a couple of phrases there. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, now to him who is able. How many of you know God's able? says it right there, he is able. Aren't you glad he's able to do something for you? To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according, listen to this phrase, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And then he glorifies him in verse 21. It's very important to know that God is able to do some stuff for you, but this verse says He's going to do... Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine some big stuff. I can imagine some pretty big things. But this verse says He can do exceedingly, abundantly more than we can even imagine. 
Not just He can, but He's able. He's able. But how is He able to do it? It tells you right there. According to His power that is at work within us. According to His power that is at work within us. This verse ties the use of His ability to the power that works in us. So God is able, He's able to do anything. But how's He going to do it? Through us. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And that's how He's able to do stuff. Amen? It's very important that we know that we have to work with God. We have to work with this power. No power working through us means that no power of God is at work in this earth. I mean, He's not going to magically make stuff work just outside of working through us. That's why we're here. Amen? All right. If we don't put the power to work, who's going to do it? We have to put that power to work. Amen? Hallelujah. All right. So Paul has explained what Christ has done for us. He prayed these two prayers to prepare uh, for what he's about to say. And he's basically presented us with doctrine. You know, chapter 1, 2, 3 is really doctrine. He presented us with doctrinal truth about um, our position, basically, in Christ. Told us the facts. Now, in uh, chapter 4, he's going to bring the doctrine and he's going to match it up with the practical, the, the experiential st- uh, part of our life. Okay? So he's told you the facts and now he's going to tell us how to apply them to our life. Amen? And so that's where we're going to start tonight in chapter 4, verse 1. Are y'all ready? You got your Bible? You got your notebook? Got a pen? You got your reading glasses? <laughs> Amen. Let's start in verse number 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life. He's already starting to talk about how to live. He didn't even get a few words in and he starts... He already is saying, here's how I want you to live. Okay? He's already applying to practical life. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Amen? So it says, I urge you. Paul uses this term, I urge you. He's basically saying, I've got a challenge for you. Here comes a challenge. And he says, to live a life. He's talking about live your, your practical life. So he's challenging you with this life-living idea. Amen? And here it is. To live worthy of the calling that you have received. We're going to talk a little bit about being worthy of the calling, but I want you to notice you have already received this calling. We're not sitting back waiting on God to call us to do something. It says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You already received it. It's time to step up. Time to step into it. Amen? You've received it. So let's walk. Some versions say walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling. That word uh, walk worthy or the word worthy, it, 
It means having worth, having merit, having value. We're talking about your life and your walk has to have value. It has to be honorable. It has to be admirable. That's what this word worthy means. Your walk needs to be honorable. It needs to be deserving of what God's done for you. Why would you not walk worthy after you see what Christ has done for you? Why would you not walk worthy after you read chapter 1, 2, and 3 and see who you are and what He's already given you? Just based on that alone makes me want to walk deserving of that. To the fullest degree. Amen? Walk worthy. And so verses 2 and 3 go on to describe how we can accomplish this worthy living. Alright, let's, let's go to uh, verse 2. I'm going to read 2 and 3. It says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Alright. So, he names four things right here. The first thing he says is to be humble. That's what my NIV says. Completely humble. Some versions say lowliness, not loneliness, low, lowliness. And that doesn't mean you think low of yourself. There is a difference between self-condemnation and humility. So don't get them mixed up. Don't, don't go around saying, well, I'm just going to think real sad thoughts about myself, and I'm just a terrible person. I'm just thinking lowly. That's not thinking lowly. That's thinking really terrible thoughts about yourself. Lowliness is humility. Humble thinking. Humility of mind. Right? It means having a humble opinion of yourself. Not self-condemning yourself. Amen? Actually, humility is just the opposite of pride. Right? So if I walk around proud of the things I have accomplished, that's not being uh, humble. Okay? So to walk worthy, you have to be humble. That means you're going to accomplish some things, and they're going to be great, because Jesus is giving you the power to do them, and He wants you to succeed, and He wants you to be that way, but you don't boast about the things that He has accomplished through you in a prideful manner. You're humble about those things. Amen? Romans 12.3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. We've read that verse before, right? That verse means no, no pride allowed. Amen? But it does mean that you don't think more highly than you ought, but you ought to think highly about yourself, just not more highly than you ought. All that means is, in humility, think Great things about the things that God has accomplished through you. But don't stick pride in there. That's all that verse means. Thinking more highly than you ought is just thinking outside of the Scripture. Amen? So, how ought should you think of yourself? Whatever this Word says, that's how you ought to think of yourself. If this Word says that I've got the favor of God all over me, I ought to think that way. About myself. That's not pride. That's not pride. That's, that's humility exercising itself in, in a, a way to think 
the way you ought to about yourself. Amen? If you walk around and you say, uh, I don't get sick because I walk in health and wholeness. That's not pride. That's confessing what this Word says and you ought to be saying those things about yourself. Amen? Y'all got it, right? Hallelujah. Think how you ought to think about yourself. Actually, it's think how God thinks about you. You ought to think how God thinks about you. There you go. Alright, so the second thing he mentions in these verses is to be gentle. Gentle. Uh, some of your translations might have said meek. Did it say meek or something else? Kind. Could say kind. Gentle means to be meek. Now understand this. Being meek is not being weak. Alright? Being Meek or being gentle is just not being abusive, not being aggressive, not being a loudmouth know-it-all. Being teachable means to be meek, to be gentle, to be moldable. It means that you're not hurtful to other people. And so to walk worthy of your calling, you have to operate your life from a place of being gentle. Moldable. Teachable. Amen? Hallelujah. The third thing that it mentions in those verses is to be patient. Woo! Some translations say long-suffering. Long-suffering. Maybe yours says that. It actually means patient endurance. That means long-lasting patience. Right? That means that that's a patience that doesn't lose its patience. Amen? So, you can say, I'm a patient person up to a point, and then I lose it. Okay, but this says being long-suffering. That's some short-suffering. Yeah, if you lose it, that's short-suffering. Be long-suffering. Wow, that's hard, isn't it? Hallelujah, that's walking Worthy of the calling. Amen? And then the fourth thing it says is to be forbearing, uh, enduring one another in love. Forbearance is very similar to patience, but it's just a tolerance, a, res- a resistance. It's, it's, it's like long-suffering, but it's basically putting up with things that you you wouldn't if you weren't forbearing them. Yeah. So it's patience, basically. Forbearing is like what we call patience, and then patience or long-suffering is taking that patience and making it last a long time. You see how important it is to be patient? It's almost listed twice. (laughs) Amen. So this is how we walk worthy of the calling. Amen? It kind of makes you understand why uh, more people are not fulfilling their calling. How many people you know keep all four of those, and that's the way they live their life? That's pretty tough to do. So those first few verses address us individually. So these instructions are for me, they're for Earl, they're for Amy, they're for each one of us. Amen? Individually. And we should all be um, pursuing those individually. 
Um, but then let's go to verse 3. This is where Paul jumps out of the individual instruction and he goes to a corporate instruction, a corporate topic. And that is where he stays for quite a bit. He's going to talk about unity. I'm going to read verse 3 again. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. That little phrase, make every effort, it means to endeavor. Like you dig in. It becomes um, most important to you. Endeavor. Make every effort. It's a giving effort until you see a result. So he's talking about bringing unity, or he's talking about unity, and he's saying this topic of unity, you've got to be ever pursuing it. Not give up. Make every effort, he says. You know, there was a, there was a short time in the church where unity was a thing. The church was unified. It was real short. But there was this short time when the church was unified. And it took us thousands of years to get to this place where we are today. It's not going to be just an overnight deal to fix it. To bring unity back to the church. But we should be endeavoring. We should be giving it our best go, right? To bring unity back to the church. Corporate unity, right? And notice that it says, keep unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. To keep unity. Not find unity. Not create unity. Keep unity. You know, when believers first become believers, at the moment of salvation, they have complete unity. When they're initially born again, that unity is there. Right? But man's ideas, man's influences, come on over to my denomination. Let me tell you why that other one is no good. Man got in the middle of the unity and caused disunity. Amen? The recreated spirit is a spirit of unity. Carries a spirit of unity. It's man's ideas that got in there. And so this verse is saying, keep unity, because when you first got saved, you had unity. What happened? We should be endeavoring to keep that unity. And how should we do it? By staying in peace. Staying in peace with others. Staying in peace with others. Amen? Paul gives seven examples in the next verse or the next few verses, about how we are one in the family of Christ. You do know that we are one with the saved Baptist, or the saved Methodist, or whoever. Believers are one in spirit. Right? There is that unity there, it's all the garbage that we fight about that keeps disunity. Amen? And so Paul, he lists out, here's, let me show you how you are one in the family of Christ. Starting in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Whoo, hallelujah. Amen? So we are one body. It says we are one body, that, that we are one body in Jesus Christ. We are one body. The body of Christ is one body. Amen? Brothers and sisters, family of God, without any division, we are one body. Then he says we are one spirit. That spirit is the one that's on the inside of every believer, that gives us this life, that gives us this power. The same resurrection power that's inside me is inside of you and inside of every denominational person if they're saved. Right? One spirit. We have one hope, it says. What is our hope? This is where people get messed up. They think that they're hoping to get healed. Or they're hoping to get a breakthrough. Or they're hoping to get something. Our hope is in Jesus and heaven and being transformed in our body. The, 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 how did I say it? The, the transformed into His likeness. Amen? Our hope is in heaven. Hope is something that you have a future expectation that you know it's going to happen. It just hasn't got here yet. Now, promises of God are different from hope because they're already a done deal. I don't hope I'm going to get saved. The Word says I'm saved. I don't hope I'm going to get healed. The Word says I'm healed. But our hope is in heaven and the, and the transformed physical body that I'm going to have one day. I know it's going to happen. It's just in the future. Amen? That's hope. And we all have the same hope. We're not in this little church hoping for one thing and over at another church they're hoping for something. We all hope for the same thing and that is a, a, a life in heaven. Eternal. Amen? So that's our one hope. We have one Lord. The word Lord means Master. You can call the Trinity your Lord. You know, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is my Lord, my Master. We all have one Lord. We have one faith. And you know, people say, what faith are you? Oh, I'm Baptist faith, or I'm Catholic faith. That's not faith. That's just your denomination. We have one faith. Our faith is in Jesus and His atonement. That's the faith that every believer has. Amen? Uh, we have one baptism. That's not going under the, under the water. That's not the baptism it's talking about. It's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you get saved. Every person that gets saved receives the Holy Spirit to indwell them. Every person, every believer has an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of us. That's how we are one. And then we have one God and Father. And that makes us a family. Amen? So, in other words, one God is above all, working through all, and living in all believers. All of us. Amen. Now, verse 7, let's see what it says. But to each of us, 
to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. To each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I want to read it in the Amplified right here. It says, Yet grace, which is God's unmerited favor, was given to each of us individually, not indiscriminately, but in different ways, in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and bounteous gifts. God has gifted you by grace. Amen? With your own special gifts. The gifts that you have benefit this family that that Paul's talking about right here. He's given each one of us special giftings that are to benefit the, the whole family. And then the next verse I love is a, is a quote from Psalm 68, 18, verse 8. He said, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now that's interesting that he quoted, Paul quoted that verse right there. His point was that you have gifts. He was making a point that you have gifts, but it's interesting that he quoted that part that says he led, in the King James it says he led captivity captive. And since he said it, we want to talk about it, right? What does that mean? He led captivity captive. Um, So I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Y'all want one? A little Bible. um... You okay back there? A little Bible lesson. Amen? So, the saints of old. How many of you can name one? Abraham. Moses. Isaac. David. The saints of old. All of your saints before Jesus. Old Testament God followers. Right? When they died, they didn't go to heaven. What? They went to a place called Sheol. It was in the belly of the earth. Described. And the saints were over on this side of a chasm. A chasm is a big divide. And then all of those who died outside of God, we're over on this side. Okay? In hell. This side over here was called paradise. Right? You remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said to the, to the um, thief that was hanging next to him, he said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Remember he said that? So this place, Sheol was one big place. But it had two sides. Paradise and basically hell. And remember the story? Where was that? Where um, the uh, rich guy was saying, how do I buy myself you know, into paradise or something like that? And, and he had a vision and, and, um, or maybe he went to hell and, and he was saying, you know, Abraham, just give me a little drink of water and... There was no crossing this divide. 
And he was praying, please go back and tell my family, you know, you know this story. Well, that's a description of that down there. Okay? And so, when Jesus died on the cross and went into hell and defeated Satan, he went into Sheol. That's where he went. And he, in, part of what he did that says he led captivity captive, so the reason these saints in paradise were called captive is because they were really trapped. They were safe and they were under a blessing, but they weren't really in the presence of God. So they were captive. And Jesus went down there and He defeated Satan and on His way out, He snatched every one of them with Him and took them to heaven and did away with paradise. Paradise gone now. It's all just hell. Okay? Y'all got that story? And so when He's quoting this, this is from the book of Psalm in the Old Testament, yet it's talking about what Jesus was going to do. It's prophetic. And it says, uh, when He ascended on high, He led captives in His train. That means he, he grabbed those that were captive and they came up out of there with Him. And He gave gifts to men. Hallelujah. So Paul's point in this verse was that He gave gifts because he's talking about the gifts that we have. But in saying that also, I wanted to make sure you guys understand what he led captivity captive. I wanted want you to know that. Alright? Did you like that story? You like your history lesson? Amen. Alright, then it goes on in verse 9 and 10. And basically, it's a little sidebar. Paul goes on like a little, um, a, a little side note. Parenthetical phrase is what that's called. It's in parentheses. It's like, this is something I just want to add to what I'm saying. It doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm talking about, but let me just add this little sidebar, okay? And he's making sure in this, in 9 and 10, he's, what he's doing, he's making sure that we understand that Jesus really, really did this. It's not just a story. He's saying, this really happened. We'll just read it real quick, verse 9 and 10. He says, What does He ascended mean except that He also descended to the lower earthly regions? He went into hell is what He did, right? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Hallelujah. So Paul's making sure we know, hey, Jesus actually, for real, like in reality, did this. He was up here. He went down there. And then he came and went way up there. Alright? Hallelujah. Then verse 11. He goes back to the topic of the gifts. And let's read it. He says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Amen. Y'all have heard that verse a million times, right? He explains these gifts. These are gifts that were given by Jesus. These were very specific gifts that are given to very specific people. Alright? We can do a full teaching on that another time. Y'all have heard a lot of teaching on that before. 
And uh, I'm going to separate that out and we'll come back someday and talk about the five-fold ministry gifts a different time. All right? You'll, you'll hear some debate about the word some. He gave some this and some that. Does he mean some individuals or does it mean that he gifted some churches with particular ministry gifts? Could be both. Right? But the thing to know is that he's given men gifts. He gave gifts. Amen? And I also want you to know these are not the only gifts. Those aren't the only gifts that he gave. So it says that he ascended and he gave gifts to men. Don't stop on these five. This is not the only five gifts he gave. There's a whole other list in 1 Corinthians um, 12, 8. And then there's a whole other list in Romans 12, 6 through 8. And we would certainly be limiting God if we were to say even all of those were all of the gifts. How many of you think God gave a gift for whatever is necessary for us to operate in power on this earth, whether it was named or not named? All of these places that I just named, they're just giving examples of the gifts that were given. Y'all go read about those gifts, amen? I'm not going to limit God to think, well, if I don't get one of those gifts, I guess I don't have a gift. We all have a gift. Amen? All right. Verse 12 is going to tell us what these gifts are for. These particular gifts that he's talking about here. It's going to tell us what, they're, what are they for. What do we need these gifts for? Verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now will stop right there. I want to read it again in the Amplified. He said, And he did this to fully equip and perfect the saints, which are God's people, for works of service to build up the body of Christ, which is the church. Now that to me doesn't sound like the pastor doing all of the ministry work while all the members just, you know, go to the coffee bar and drink coffee and and, um, you know, socialize. That doesn't sound like just the pastor doing all the work to me. Full-time ministers, which are these people that he named, they do have a function, yes. They are to minister to the, the Word to the saints. Pastor Allen's job is to minister the Word to everyone that's standing in front of him But the saints, everybody raise your hand and say, I'm a saint. The saints are to go out and reach the lost world. The saints are to carry the ministry message to the world. Pastor Allen can't reach everybody. His position is to minister the Word to you so that you are equipped to go out and do the work of ministry. Amen? That's what this verse says. I heard um, a minister say shepherds, pastors are called shepherds, right? Shepherds don't have sheep. They tend sheep. And the sheep reproduce. Right? This is called discipleship. That's discipleship. 
That's what this in our vision here. That's what we should be doing. It's what pastors and apostles and teachers and they are creating disciples. That's what discipleship is all about. Reproducing. Amen. Verse 13. Verse 13, how long are these gifts going to last? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That was a lot of ands. So he's saying a mouthful right there, right? How long are these gifts going to last us? Until we all reach unity. But reach unity how? He names two areas of unity. Unity in the faith. Okay, that means everybody believing alike on the fundamentals of faith. Unity in faith doesn't mean you agree on every single tiny little bitty detail, what color the carpet should be and how loud the music's supposed to be and... That's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the unity of faith is in agreement about the fundamentals of, the, of this Word. That's going to take some work, some enduring, right? And then unity in the knowledge of Jesus, which is the knowledge that brings us to, some versions say, perfection, Perfection just means maturity. Until we have enough knowledge that we're not babies anymore. Amen? And then, how long are these gifts going to last? Until we reach unity, and then it says, until we have become mature. Mature people have renewed their mind to a place where they live fully submitted to this Word. To the kingdom of God. They live fully the kingdom standards. So these gifts are going to last until we are unified in the faith and we're unified in the knowledge of Jesus and they're also going to last until we are all mature. Now we got a lot of work to do because there's a lot of not mature people. Amen? Not living like Christ. Mature just means you're living like Christ. Some people would even argue with you, you can't live like Christ. They would, they would build a doctrine on the fact that you mean to say you think you can live like Christ. Well, the Word says right here that these gifts are going to last. The reason we have these gifts so we can be mature. Mature means to live like Christ. Right? We can live like Christ. Amen. Verse 14. If we get to this place, here's what's going to happen. Then we will no longer be infants. How many of you want to get out of the believer's nursery? (laughs) Amen. We will no longer be infants. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So, when I, when I read that verse, I think about a t- 
tiny little ship in a great big ocean with big waves, and it's just being tossed around like, you know. And that's how some people live their life. Oh, something good over here. I'm tired of that. Ooh, look at this over here. I'm going to go see that. Ooh, that preacher over there, he's pretty good. I'm going to go see. They got great music over here. I'm going to go back and forth, up and down, even in their emotional life. I'm feeling great today. Next day, oh, no, I'm depressed. I'm sad. Next day, I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I want to kill myself. Uh, I think I'm going to... I mean, that just on this wave, right? Roller coaster living. Paul calls people like that infants, babies. Because young children are easily manipulated, right? Can't you tell a little two-year-old anything and they believe you? I once told Gabriel, he cut his hand and I said, just rub some dirt in it, it'll be alright. And he did it. I mean, they believe, they believe in it. They're easily manipulated. Gullible. Right? And that's what Paul is calling people who ride this wave. And he's saying, if we live this life, walk worthy of the calling and operate in these gifts, we don't have to be babies anymore. We don't have to get tossed around. It won't matter if the flashy pastor comes to town and tells a bunch of stuff that sounds real good. and, and You will know in your spirit, you'll know that that is garbage. You'll know what to stay away from. Right? Hallelujah. Being tossed to and fro. Some versions say tossed back and forth or tossed to and fro. That's double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. And James 1, 6-8, through 8, I want to read it to you. You can jot that down and look later. But it says, James chapter 1, 6-8. through 8, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. No wonder people don't get what they pray for. As God says, that that word says they're double-minded. Focused on the outward instead of the inward. You'll never be mature chasing after the cool, the catchy, the fad that comes along. You've got to get to the truth. And here's what Paul says next in verse 15. He said, instead of that, verse 15... Instead, he says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. He said, instead of all that, instead of all that wishy-washy up and down, grow up. Just grow up, he says. And you want to know how to grow up? Grow up spiritually, I mean. I know, you know, you can grow up naturally if you eat your peas and cornbread. I'm talking about growing up spiritually. You want to know how to grow up spiritually? Speaking the truth in love. Allowing someone to speak the truth to you in love. Amen? Now I want you to hear me. You may think you know some stuff. And you might actually know what you're talking about. 
And you can talk to somebody all day long about whatever it is you're trying to convince them. Whether it's salvation or whatever. Whether you're um, kind of going to them about some behaviors that they have and you want to see them change their life. You know, we have to go with people sometimes and point things out to them. We are to do that. And you may be standing there and you may know you're right. I'm right. If you don't listen to me, you're going, you, know, you may be right. You may be 100% telling them the truth. But if it's not coming through a filter of love, they are not going to receive it. Because you just set yourself up in a position of pride. Amen? So here's the balance. Because this says that we need to speak the truth. People need to hear the truth. It will snap them back into worthy walking when you tell them the truth in love. Right? So the balance is is that we, in love, we must stick to the truth. We have to tell them the truth. Even if it hurts their feelings. I'm sorry if... No, I'm not sorry. Even if the truth hurts, you tell it from a place of love because you love them. Right? Even if it's not what they want to hear. And here's a sad face. Even if it makes them leave your church. Because it has happened. Am I right? Speak the truth in love, and then it's up to them to respond to that truth. It's up to them to respond. A lot of preachers are preaching what the crowd wants to hear. And he's preaching to a bunch of babies going up and down on the waves because he's not telling them the truth. But here's the thing, the truth runs some people off because they don't want to hear it. I can't hear that. That hurts too much. That means i got to change something in my life. Don't tell me the truth. Just tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good about myself. And there's nothing in this Word that tells us as believers to just tell people what they want to hear. Make them feel good about themselves. No, it doesn't say that. It says, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. John 8.32 says... You shall know the truth, and the truth is what makes you free. We're trying to set people free by giving them a feel-good message, and that's not what sets people free. The truth sets them free, if they allow it to. Tell the truth in love. Amen? Verse 16, and that's where we're going to stop for tonight. We got halfway through. Verse 16. From Him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Every member, are you a member? Every member of the body of Christ has to be doing his part, doing her part for the whole to reach its full potential. 
Now you have an individual potential, and you can grow in your own individual self. We're talking about the church as a whole. We all have a part, and we all have to do our part for this church to reach its potential and to come back to that place of unity. Amen? It's a joint effort. Right? That word joined in that verse. Jordan, you'll like this. It's an anatomy, physiology term. Joined. It means, your version may say, fitly joined together. But that little phrase, it's a word taken from the way that our physical bodies function. It's the same way that our body, each part contributes toward the good of the whole thing. That's what this word actually means, joined, fitly joined together. It's the way our bodies work together, each piece, each part. I believe even the appendix, Lexi, even that little dangly thing in the back of your throat that nobody knows what it does, all of these parts work together for the good of the whole. Amen? In the same way, all of the parts of the body of Christ work together for the good of the whole. And then that, that next word that says, in my version, says held together. Yours might say compact. It means to press or join firmly together. Have you ever seen a piece of particle board? You know, a piece of particle board, a sheet, big sheet of particle board. It's strong. Glued together. It's strong when it's glued together, isn't it? It makes a, You can build a house with it. But before it got glued together, it was just a bunch of little pieces of shavings, right? That's what a particle board is. It's just a bunch of little scraps of wood. They've been pressed. They've been glued together to make one board. Amen? The strength of that board comes from the unity of the pieces. Amen? And this is why Paul is stressing this unity thing. It's so important. Amen. So, I guess I'm going to stop right there. i got more notes and we'll just keep going into this. It may take three weeks to get through Ephesians chapter 4 because I'm going to tell you, it's my favorite chapter of the Bible. I love it. I think you could preach 43 messages just from Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know, I made up that number. But I'll stop right there. Paul has established the importance of unity. And in the next part, he begins to explain at the beginning the way we should not be living. First, he's going to tell us how not to live. Well, that should be interesting, right? Hallelujah. We'll get to that next week. I love you guys. I hope you're getting something from this. I'm enjoying going through it. If anybody has a comment or a question, it's 8 o'clock if you need to leave. But if you have a question, feel free to shout that out. And uh, we'll see you Sunday.